Go ahead and be seated, everybody, if you like. If you want to stand for the sermon, you can. It's, there's nothing wrong with it, just as long as there's nobody behind you. The, this will be the most philosophical or theological of the four sermons on prayer. Um, but we believed it was really important to start out with the question of what is true, what is, what is true about God, what is true about prayer, what should motivate a hunger for God. Because whenever we look at the question of why do we pray, there are other attending questions that follow along really quickly like, why should we pray? Or maybe as relevantly as anything else, why don't we pray? I mean, on one level, there's always sort of like the never-ending guilt trip about prayer, which is kind of like, it's sort of like saying I love you to your wife. Like, however much you say it, it's probably not enough, right? You could, it could always be more. You know, it's just one of those things, where it could always be more, right? Um, it's like chocolate ice cream. Like, I've had some. It was, there could always be more. Right? So, um, but one of the things that's also true is there was a survey done some years ago with pastors, and they asked American pastors how much they prayed in the average day, and they said about five minutes was the, was the standard answer for, for pastors. It's probably because we talk really fast. But one of the reasons why that's a little scary is, is, is that um, when you ask everybody else in the world if they believe in prayer and they pray, what most people say is yes. I mean, there's very few people who are like, no, there's no sky, God, I'm not praying. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, we've got plenty of them in Madison. But like, most people are kind of like, look, I don't even know if there's a God, but sometimes, man, I'll throw one up there. You know, that's usually the answer you get. And then you've got Christians who are like, oh, I totally pray. Like, I, prayer is so good. I, yeah, I hate it, it's, but it's great. You know, um, but part of the issue is even the people who say they pray, it, they probably don't anywhere near as much as they lead us to believe, right? I mean, it's it's, it's sort of like, you know, you become a Christian and you hear like Christians read the Bible and you're like, well, maybe I should read the Bible. And then people are like, well, are, are you into word? Are you reading your Bible? And you're kind of like, yeah, I read the Bible. And then like the worst possible thing is people start getting specific, like, oh, that's really great. What'd you read today? And you're like, oh, great question. Yeah, I didn't read the Bible today. And then like the worst thing that can happen at that point is that they're not judgmental. Because if they're judgmental, you can like dismiss them and be like, well, you should have read the Bible. You'd be like, screw you, you're judgmental, right? But if the worst possible thing, they're like, oh, that's cool. What'd you read this week? That's like the worst thing. Because then you're kind of like, oh, oh, I don't know if I read it this week. They're like, but you've been reading your Bible? Yeah, I've been reading. Well, no, I'm just lying, I guess, you know? <laughs> the, the, uh, you know the average amount of TV the, Ameri- the average American kid watches in, in, in our country, right? It's, this is participatory. Anybody? 30 hours, right? The standard is 30 hours a week. And do you know what the average American parent says their kid watches? 15, right? The, 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 sort of, the standard deal is a parent will report their kid watches half of the TV they actually watch, right? I think, that, I think that's, pretty, that's probably right for me. Um, I think prayer is probably the opposite. We probably 50% increase our reporting on how much we pray at least, right? How much do you pray at least? I'm three hours, right? It's like four minutes, right? That's probably, you know, that's really— and, and part of the thing I think that we need to face is, is that the romantics and the bohemians and the hedonists are actually wrong about human life, okay? We cannot just follow our gut, our instincts, and our tastes wherever we feel like. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be so easy if life was like that? You could just say the first thing that popped into your mind— you just say it. It's fine. Because that's how life is. And you could just do whatever you felt like, with whoever you felt like, however you felt like, and everything would go pretty much fine. Wouldn't that be—like, on one level, in terms of ease, that would be so nice. But life just isn't like that. 
And when you realize that, one of the things I think we realize is that there's actually a lot of stuff that makes, um, that makes prayer kind of difficult. And one of them is that prayerlessness or a a weakness in the area of prayer is actually something produced by a great blessing sometimes. Because as a pastor, when I look at High Point there, and I look at our strengths— Many of their strengths are strengths of faithfulness. That is, when it comes to, like, putting on our boots and doing stuff, we're actually pretty good at that. You know, people volunteer, people come to church, people go make meals for people. I mean, people just do stuff. It's really great. And when it comes to faithfulness, there's a lot of faithfulness. But but also, when you look at what isn't very evident at High Point Church, what I don't get to see very often, oftentimes it's the stuff you would think would accompany prayer. Like, God acting. Like, people who— don't believe in Jesus, decide they believe in Jesus, and a miracle of regeneration happens inside of them. Just happens. A a marriage that is spinning and burning its way to the ground, like pulls up and gains altitude, like something happens, where people, the two people's hearts are turned toward each other instead of against each other. Like, people just, things that they've been, they've been screwing up their whole life, they kind of have like a come-to-Jesus moment, and they like realize what's going on. And something breaks and changes and turns a little bit, and it, it like— the kind of stuff where you would expect something outside of normal to happen in order for it to happen. And when I look around, it, I, I don't see as much of that. And it's not that there—but there have been seasons of that. Like, I've seen stuff. In the five years I've been here, I've seen people get healed. I've seen people come to Jesus. Like, it's not like that stuff doesn't happen at all. It's happened. It's not normal for us. And I think one of the reasons why, when I investigate how much prayer actually happens in our marriages, in our homes, in our lives, in our understanding of Jesus and how we walk with him— I think it's actually part of the blessing of being a pretty capable, empowered, and responsible people. I I think most of the people who are in this room, I think that most of you are pretty responsible, pretty capable, pretty self-disciplined when it comes to the basic things of life, and we just get stuff done. And when you get stuff done, you begin to think that you're the kind of person who gets stuff done, and you start to feel like you can do stuff, and you start to feel like you don't need any help. And you kind of, and you don't like it when people help you because they kind of get in your way, and you kind of figure that God's going to probably do that too, and you just wish everybody would leave you alone and let the competent you just do things. And what it produces spiritually actually is a terrible weakness. And in addition to that, almost everything about us in our experiences actually point us in the opposite direction of prayer. Some of it is like the religious pathologies we pass on to each other. I was going to call them spiritually transmitted diseases, but then I thought that wouldn't be a good acronym. <laughs> um, just, I, it just functions. Um, so I just I thought we could call them religiously transmitted tics, where like, if, like you're in a prayer meetings and people do stuff absolutely the opposite of what you expect from how they explain prayer works. So they'll be like, God is just there. You just talk to him. That's, that's all you're doing, right? And then you actually pray with them, and they're like yelling— and they're using language they'd never use, and they, like, talk at God like you yell at a teenager. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you, like, you know that teenager, like, half the punishment is how long you yell at them? Like, I've listened to, to, like, people yell at teenagers, and one person in particular, and it's like, our preteen, it's like, we make the point, and then it goes on 200% longer than that. And the only conclusion I can come to is the yell at the other 200% is just punishment. 
just, I'm yelling at you, that is punishment, right? It's almost like when we pray, it's, kind of, it's not kind of like, Lord, this thing's happening. You already know that. Will you help? I mean, how often do people pray for like five seconds? Let's pray. God, you heard what John just said. Would you help? Would you please help and do something in this situation? Amen. No, what you get is, John, you, Lord, you know John from the moment he was conceived in eternity past. You saw him when he was cell-dividing in his mother's womb, and you know every hair on his head, and you like the shape of his ears, and you, Lord, we just, like, you know, it's like we get these kinds of, like, stories of, like, you know, if you don't pray, like, when I was, like, when I was, like, 17, I was going, I went to this church, and, like, I, like, I'm a Catholic kid, like, I didn't have a lot of church experience in that sense. And he, the, the, the preacher was talking about prayer, and he talked about this guy named Praying Hyde. Have you ever heard of this? Raise your hand if you're old enough to have heard about, okay, right, so Praying Hyde. This is a guy who prayed so much, right? They were like, the, the skin on his knees was like a hide. It was like leather. And he like, he like basically prayed his legs off of his body, you know, like, and that is awesome. And what is wrong with you, right? Like, you're like, oh my gosh, like, are you kidding me? I pray sitting sometimes or standing by, like, and, and like, and you, it's never going to go well once that's the illustration. Like, that's the standard. You're like, I'm not even going to play that game. I don't want to try. I don't care, right? And it's, it's not helpful. And part of the deal is, is like, my, when, I, when people talk like that, I just grab my Bible and be like, just show me where this book anywhere says you should pray a long time. Just show me anywhere doesn't, because it doesn't anywhere say that. It says in Luke that you should pray and never give up. That doesn't actually mean pray a long time. It actually says that the pagans talk on and on because they think in the many words that they use, that somehow because of that they'll be heard, and, and the insinuation is that's stupid, right? So what, what we do is we know that Jesus prayed all night one time before he walked on a lake, and we assume that because Jesus prayed all night one time, like, we're supposed to pray for hours, right? And there's nothing necessarily wrong with praying for a long time. Listen, what I tell people to ask me, how long should I pray for? I say, listen, you just pray till you're done. That's all. Just pray till you're done. You'll know when you're done. You'll be done, right? And that could be four minutes. That could be two hours. It's like maybe depends on how long there's been since the last phone call. You know what I'm saying? But— but like at some point you'll be like, okay, I think I've said what I've come here to say. I've sort of waited for God to show me anything about myself I might need to realize. I've journaled my abstract thoughts that have come in. Like, I, I'm done. Right? Then you're done. But you get these like, right, you get these— in the church, you get these, like, weird actions, these ticks that we pass. Like, have you ever been in a prayer meeting where everybody says the word just, like, 19 times in every prayer? Lord, we just ask you to just come now and just teach us and just help Sarah with her emotional issues, and we pray that she'd just learn how to be a mom okay, and we just—and you're like, what, where did you get the just thing? Like, what, the, 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 what is that? You're not asking for just anything. You're asking for a miracle. Why would you stick just in there, right? But people just do it, and they just pick it up, and then we just pass it along, and then we all sound weird to new people. Isn't that great? You know? In the Alpha Course, they say, listen, the first night you pray, as you because you're going to ask somebody else to pray next week, this is how you should pray for the food. God, thank you for this food. Mm. Amen. And then the non-Christian guy's like, man, I could do that. <laughs> There's also a lot of— um, 
there's, there's philosophical objections, like, well, if God knows everything and he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, why am I praying? Or philosophically, you might not understand the value of a discipline, right? That what we do with our bodies affects our souls. You might not have that worked out, and so you don't think what you do with your body matters for your emotions and morality and personal discipline, and so you just think it doesn't matter. So you don't care about discipline, so prayer doesn't make a lot of sense. There's lots of—there's philosophical objections. There's, there's social factors, like some people just feel really awkward praying among churchy prayer people, and so they're in a small group, and they don't say anything. They don't pray. Why? Because they just feel socially awkward, partly because they're praying with socially awkward people. But they also feel awkward praying, but there's also a certain amount of intimidation from the outside, like people that will make fun of you because you believe that there is an unseen, hidden God who is there that acts in the affairs of men and women. And has told us, though he knows everything, to come to him and call on him. There's also all, all kinds of psychological experiences. Like, one of the things I love about my phone is that it, like, like tells me I've done something. So if I'm texting, it has this, like, they call it haptic feedback. I'm not—I don't even really know what the word haptic means. I'm just—can I just be honest with you? What I know is that when I do stuff, it, like, moves enough that I sort of know I've done something, right? And you're like, oh, I like that haptic feedback, right? And that's what we really want in prayer. I mean, how many of you are old enough for dial-up internet? Anybody? I grew up rural, okay? So, so, so I know now you, like, open up your laptop, you young people, and you're like, I'm online, and I'm in Tibet. Like, I get that, right? But, like, back in the day— you had to dial up to the internet with your phone. And it would make a special sound if you were on because that was not a sure thing, okay? So you would like dial and it would be like, it would like ring like a phone and you're wondering like if you're gonna get the internet's answering machine, okay? And, you're just, you're, and, then, it, and then it would do this like, you can do it with me if you want. And you're like, now that sounds like a really annoying sound, and it was a really annoying sound, but it signified something wonderful, because you were like, yes, yes, I've connected with something. That's back when there were only like nine web pages on the whole internet, but it was still exciting. <laughs> and there is, that doesn't happen when you pray. Like, you don't go like, Lord, and you don't get like a, you're online with God. You just don't get that. And then after you pray, you, the stuff doesn't just happen. Just, you're just like, Lord, my furnace isn't working, and it would be awesome if it would just start working, like, right now. What normally doesn't happen is this, right? And normally we don't, if you don't know, we don't know God well enough for how he would act and intervene. Oftentimes, we just don't have eyes to see how he acts. And so, oftentimes he's answering our prayer, but he's doing it in a very interesting kind of way that you just don't really pick up on. Because he's actually like, trying to accomplish like 17 different things, and you're just trying to accomplish one thing. And so it really looks like he's doing it in the most unefficient way possible, but actually he's doing it in the most efficient way possible because he's doing like 17 things, and some of them are dependent on human choices and all kinds of things that he's intentionally not controlled, and et cetera. Of course, that gets kind of deep from there. And there's the personal humiliation of prayer. Okay, you ready for public humiliation? This is voluntary, okay? Public humiliation. All right, if when you pray, you fall asleep a third of the time or better. Raise your hand. This is me. I, I do. I'm, this, I'm not just— uh, Right, okay. Great, okay. Raise your hand if when you pray, within the first five to seven minutes, if you pray that long, you have a number of situations where you realize you are not praying anymore, but you are doing something else with your mind. Okay. All right. How many people, when you pray— you find yourself 
not praying anymore, but trying to create the emotion that you just asked God for, or in your head you are handling the situation you were just praying to God about. All right, right? Yeah, you stink at prayer, right? So, right? We, we stink at prayer. And that's humiliating. Like you try to pray, and enough times you just straight up fall asleep, and you're like, I don't know what was happening, but there's, I'm drooling. Like, this is bad. It just kind of feels awkward, right? And there's all kinds of those sorts of psychological things. And then there's also, there's, and these are some of the biggest ones and the ones we don't think about, is basically the fact that we are sinners and God is God, and prayer is an enormously uncomfortable experience. We think, we're like, oh yeah, God loves us, and we're his children, and so we pray. Yeah, but here's the thing. You're actually terrified to pray. You know that what prayer actually is, is you do have the right of access, if you're a Christian, to come into God's presence because of the atonement of Jesus. But you are still coming into the presence of the one who is your father, and who is referred to as a consuming fire. And that is not comfortable. And part of the reason it's not comfortable is because of our justified fear of losing control. Because when you come into the presence of God to make requests, guess what also happens? God makes demands. <laughs> That's what happens. So you come because you, like, you want your boss to be less of an idiot, and what you get told is that you're going to stop fornicating. That's what happens. Or gossiping. Or whatever. You're a jerk. Right? Like, you, you'll be praying and be like, God, I wish you would—I mean, it would be great if my boss was, was, like, not a jerk. And then what, you'll, you'll feel this internal impression. Yeah, it would be great if you weren't a jerk. And you'd be like, that's not what we're talking about. Don't change the subject. Right? And if you're actually praying, you're going to have to deal with that. And that is really not comfortable. Because you'll enter in ready to make requests, but there's one to whom you will make requests who is ready to make demands. All loving, all for your good, and for the good of your neighbor. And, and listen, here's the problem, though. It doesn't matter how hard prayer is. What matters is what's true. What's true? Yeah, look, life is hard. Life is a great battle. The romantics and the hedonists and the bohemians, they're all wrong. You can't just flip through life and follow your stomach. That's not how life is. Life is a great battle. You have to become what you were meant to be through discipline and faith and trust and walking and pleading with God for help. And it's very difficult. All those things are against us, and we must overcome them all. And so we might start by calling on the name of the Lord. Right? Because when we ask what's true, all of us— have to answer three questions, basically, that are very fundamental to human existence, and they come to us on the, on the first pages of the Bible, and they're these. One, are unseen realities as real as physical ones? Now, that may sound like a very simple question, and you may either embrace it or dismiss it, but it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more intuitive, difficult than that, because I'm not just talking about God. I'm talking about all abstract objects and persons, which includes math, it includes all moral propositions, and includes all spiritual beings. All of those things are unseen, and none of them can be accessed empirically, directly. And you'd be like, wait a second, one plus one equals two is clearly more empirical than God exists. <sighs> sort of. Sort of. I would like to just note 
that Alfred North Whitehead and Bertrand Russell, two atheists, took 300 pages to prove in Principia Mathematica that one plus one equals two. So maybe it's not as simple as we thought. The reason why we think it's simple is because our non-empirical capacities that God has given us, that is reason and intuition, can access these non-empirical things quite easily in very simple things they access. So by reason, we know very simply one plus one equals two. But it is a non-empirical faculty accessing a non-physical truth. It's just so obvious, and we're so used to using that faculty, it doesn't seem non-physical. But all of us have to face the fact that does God exist is the same sort of thing as is torturing a baby wrong and does one plus one equal two? Now, it is possible that one plus one can equal two and God may not exist. But they are the same kind of thing. And either you are the kind of person that thinks only things you can kick are real, or you're the kind of person that recognizes that there are many other things that are equally real that are not physical, which leads to the second question, is one of those something personal? Because otherwise, guys, we are weird critters. I mean, have you ever, no like, have you ever noticed that? Like, there, there are these bipedal primates existing in this huge expanse of a universe that sort of long for community and personhood and personality. We impute personhood to things like trees and suns and have for thousands of years. We can't not see the personalness in everything, and we're basically it that can do that. And we're just sort of here. That is either incredibly strange, or it signifies that we are the crowning piece of creation, given a particular faculty to bring a certain kind of thing to the ordering and dominion of all of creation, because the one who created us is like that. And of course, there's not just the revelation of creation and the revelation of the humanness of human beings. There's also the special revelations of the man, Jesus Christ, who explicitly told us this was true, and the written scriptures. And all four of those revelations, general and special, say the universe we live in is personal because a per the, the personal one created it. And then there's a question about what kind of thing are you? Are you self-sufficient, self-developing, and self-defining, or aren't you? Who defines what you are? How and in what way are you to develop and to become the thing you were meant to be? And are you capable and do you have the resources in and of yourself? Now that may sound really abstract, but that question in essence is how the era of the hiddenness of God in the Bible begins. So I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. They walked with God. They kind of knew he existed. But two generations removed, people are believing people they didn't know all that well. And God has laid a curse on his creation and withdrawn himself in hiddenness, and we exist in that same basic relationship where we believe in a—there is a hidden God that we believe does exist and functions redemptively in the affairs of men. And there are two lines of people that respond to these questions in the early chapters of Genesis in very different ways. The first one is in Genesis chapter 4. So at the end of Gen Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. And then we get the line of Cain 
And then we get the line of Seth, which is the other child born after Abel to Adam and Eve. And he becomes the other line of human beings. And in each of those lines, we basically get so-and-so was this old, then he had this child, and then he lived this many years, and then he died. That's all they say, except for with— in each line, there is one person. We're told about what they're like, so we understand the tenor and the way that line rolls. What kind of people are in this human family? And in the line of Cain, the person that we're told about is a guy named Lamech. Everybody else, he's this old, then he dies. Lamech, we actually hear something. And there's two main things we hear about how he responds to the universe in which he lives. And that is this. He is the first human to engage in polygamy, which is not just the grasping of pleasure, but the grasping of wealth. Because in that kind of a society, children are warriors and farmhands. And more children, more wives equals more children, and more children means more security and more wealth, as well as more pleasure. And Lamech is the first one who says, I'm important enough that I want two women, not one. And then he says this to his wives. He says, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words, which means I'm being poetic because I really mean this. Right? And then he says, I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, I'm too important to only receive justice when people hurt me. You see, when Moses comes along and gives the command of God, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and no more, he is instituting Difficult justice, but justice nonetheless. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we like to say that's barbaric, but literally, morally, it's justice. This is not. This is revenge. This is, I'm going to teach you a lesson. That is, if somebody hurts me, I'm going to kill them. And if anybody ever kills me, family, I want you to know this, you're to go to their tribe and kill 77 of their people, because I am untouchable. Do you see the line of Lamech, the line of Cain? Do you see how they respond to these three questions? Abstract objects like morality don't exist and aren't worth paying attention to. There is no personal God who's going to stand against me. I define myself from myself. I decide who I am. I decide what I'm going to do, and I'll do what I darn well please. On the other side, there's the line of Seth. And it says that Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And then there's this almost this throwaway line. It doesn't really fit the generational sections, but it's just there at the very end of chapter 4. And it says this, At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And it's situated at the very beginning of the line of Seth. That is, the line of Seth from Enosh, the grandson of Adam, and following people in that family— begin to call on not just a general idea of a God's spirit, but they begin to call on the name of the Lord as real information from him had been passed down. That is, they thought they knew the God they were referring to, the God who created, the God who judged, the God who did right, the God who told Adam and Eve what to do, the God who promised redemption that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That particular God whose name was Yahweh, they begin to call on his name in faith. And the one person in the line of Seth that we actually hear something about is a guy named Enoch. All the rest of them, just look at the line of Cain, he was this old when he had this son, then he lived this long, and then he died. There's only one person we hear anything else about, and it's Enoch. And it says this, 
When Enoch had lived 75 years, he became the father of Methuselah, who had become the father of Noah. And after he became the father—sorry, uh, then East Enoch walked with God 300 years. He had other sons and daughters all together. Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. Which is a little odd, because if you look at the rest of that generation section, the—I think the lowest number of years anybody lives besides this is 799 or something like that. 800 years is—that's a young man to die. He lives 365 years, then he's just gone. There's only two people in the entire Bible that don't die. And Jesus is not one of them. It's Elijah and this guy. And all we know about him is that for 300 years, he walked with God. That is, in the line of Seth are two things, faith and faithfulness. Faith, they called on the name of the Lord. They recognized that the universe did have abstract objects like abstract persons who are spirits, that is God, angels, demons, and so on. It had abstract propositions like moral truths that could not be transgressed. And therefore, if we were going to live up to that, we had better get some help. And so they called out to the one who was the personal one who'd created everything because they believed they needed help. They needed God to help them develop, God to define who they were, and God to define what they were meant to do. And listen, we're all one of those two people. Cain's line wasn't all bad. They pursued a lot of great things. And Seth's line, we're actually not told what they pursued, but I'm sure they pursued plenty of stuff. They pursued wives and children and food and fun, I'm sure. But there were fundamental differences between the two. One so believed in the centrality of themselves that they already began to destroy the most important human institution, the family with polygamy, and the most important interhuman reality, justice, because he wanted to be important. And the other line did two things. Faith and faithfulness. They called on the name of the Lord, and at least one of them walked with God so profoundly that after 300 years of it, God just took him up. So, you see, I, it only took me 10 minutes to come up with the 15 objections to prayer, why it's hard. L- listen, let me sum that up for you. Life is hard. <laughs> it's not fair. It's not easy. And what you need most will never come naturally. But that doesn't mean it can't come joyfully or powerfully or strongly. It doesn't mean that it can't have an enormously powerful motivation that propels you forward. It will propel you forward, but it will propel you forward against another force pushing back. The headwinds are never going to stop blowing. You need the engine. And that, that engine, Scripture tells us over and over again, we're going to look at one passage in just a second, comes from God. God has not placed it in the dynamics of nature. He has withheld it to directly give himself so that only living faithfully will not access it. Something beyond just doing the right thing and going through the right natural motions is required. He has required that we call on him for something that we need and that that is part, that spiritual action in the supernatural working but is necessary for how we are to live fully in the natural world in which we live. 
as the creatures that we are. And there's a really fundamental question of which, which father in the family of humans will you call your own? Which, which way do you choose to go? And it comes down to a very simple question. Will you call on the name of the Lord? Now, there's lots of ways that we could come at the question of why, why would we do that? Um, and I think you know I would love to give a two-hour, like, syllogistic disputation on this. Um, but to try to bring it home kind of clearly, there's actually a place in the Bible where the Apostle Paul is writing, and he explicitly says, this is why I'm praying. In fact, it's a kind of an odd place. If you want to look at your pew Bibles, I'm going to read out of these, this, so you, you might want to do it. It's in the book of Ephesians, which is 1775 in your pew Bible. And in chapter 3, in the first verse— this is on page 1777. It says, for this reason, all right, that's, that's helpful, right? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. Do you see that? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. You know why there's a dash there? You know why there's a dash there? <laughs> because he stops that sentence, cold right there, and goes back and talks for 13 verses more about what he was talking before that. So that if you turn the page and go down to verse 14, it starts again for this reason. It's kind of, it's, it's sort of funny. It's one of the only places in the Bible that does that. I'm going to, okay, for this reason, I'm going to tell you why I'm doing something, and then it stops. And there's like 13 more verses, and then he starts again for this reason. And here's why. Because he can't help but tell us more about the because. The apostle wants to tell us and wants us to know what we're praying for. It's kind of important to know God well enough to know what we should be praying for. We're going to get that in just a second. But that's actually not the big reason why we pray. The big reason we pray is because— God has already done something to us and with us and through us and in the world. And it is because of that that we pray, not for anything. And we can only get to the for once we get the because straight. Does that make sense? Now, if you flip back—I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to talk about the other one. If you go through Ephesians, chapter 1 is about the fact that God chose in his sovereign election— to redeem humanity through Christ and by grace. Meaning, God could have required us to earn our salvation, or he could have tortured us in something like a purgatory for near eternity so that we could have another chance, or he could have obliterated us so we no longer exist and created new ones that maybe would do better. There are lots of other things God could have done that would not have saved us. But because God is actually loving and chooses out of his character to love despicable things—that's us I'm talking about now—he chose to save on the basis of grace, that is, generosity. And Scripture says, and it's because he's just glorious. And so, from eternity past, he just chose 
to save us on the basis of his graciousness rather than on some other thing. And through his own resources, that is through Christ, the Son of God would come and save us. We wouldn't save ourselves. And then in chapter 2, he starts out with another really complimentary section that starts out, For you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then he says, a couple verses later, Like the rest of humanity, we were by nature deserving wrath and punishment. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy— made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. That is, he spiritually resurrected us out of his graciousness and his mercy so that we could be alive. And then it says this, which is just as important. Look at verse 8 in chapter 2 there. This is on 1777. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith— Right? So God's—it's by God's graciousness that we're saved. The only condition of that is faith. We have to believe and accept it. And then he says this, not by works or by our deeds, right? So that no one can boast, for we are God's— and I don't like this translation, but this is how it translates. For we are God's handiwork. It'd be much better to translate that workmanship so you can see the relationship between those two words. It's not by our works. It is by God's workmanship. So what are we going to do in the future if God has redeemed us and that's done and we're not doing it? We're not, sa- we're not in the process of saving ourselves. So what are we doing? Right? Well, we're supposed to be being humans. We're supposed to be fulfilling the creation mandate. Filling the earth and subduing it and bringing out its creative potential and doing science and being loving and creating families and doing all the things humans were meant to do. We're just meant to do it as redeemed people and we're meant to bring that redemption to everybody else. And he says, you're, and so therefore you're done, if you believe in Jesus and you accept his gracious salvation, you're done working for it. No, no, no. You have become the workmanship of God. God has made you into something. And as that something, you just live. And then he says, what God has done vertically in that way affects everything that happens in the human race horizontally. Because if God has done that for everyone— If he saves everybody the same way, if everybody's lost in death and sin, he redeems everybody graciously through a simple gift. All people who receive that gift become his workmanship and are empowered by the same spirit. What that means is all of the dividing walls between humans, for every reason, become defunct in their relevance. There is no legitimate reason by which we can divide and exclude others out of our human experience, and therefore love reigns supreme, and we are called to live that out. And that's what he ends, he, he ends with in the end of chapter 2. And you think he's done, and he says, so because of all that, let me pray, oh wait! Do you get it? Oh wait. Well, what's the last thing? Here's the last thing. He goes back, he says, okay, so because the mystery of Christ is that he's, he saved us, and now we're co-heirs and a co-people and co-inheritors, we're all one. He said, here's what's happened. Look at verse 10 in chapter 3, this is 1778. His, that's God's intent, that's his purpose. So what's his purpose for all of this? Because it's not good enough yet. He's not done. It's already pretty good. But he's not done. 
It was God's intent, his purpose, that now, meaning after the death and resurrection, now that we've become one people as the church, redeemed by Jesus, that now through the church— how much can you get done through the church, right? This is a little strange turn. That now through the church, what will happen? The manifold, or you can translate that multifaceted, like a gem, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms— according to his eternal purpose, the election from chapter 1, that he accomplished in Christ, Jesus, the salvation he talked about in chapter 2, our Lord. In him, Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. See what he's saying? What he's saying is, don't you, don't you see, it's not just about, it's not just about getting rid of racism or nationalism in the negative sense of the term or, or like bringing estranged families together or bringing, allowing the classes to talk to one another or just about your personal salvation or about you being freed from the slavery of sin or, or any of those amazing things. It's not just about all those things. Here's the thing, that when Christ saves and creates this new people, the church, these strange humans that kind of stink at everything, that are clearly wicked, but whom God is redeeming, through this group of people, God is actually revealing the glory of his own wisdom that nobody understands, not humans nor angels or demons. Because when that says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, he is not talking about human intelligences. He's talking about spiritual intelligence that is angels and demons. What he's saying is, is through what we do together and what Christ has done in us, that every intelligent being except for God himself who already knows, all humans, all angels and demons are finding out how intricate God's wisdom is. That is happening among us. And therefore, he says, when you realize that, you realize what God's doing, don't you see how that affects prayer? Through him and through faith in him, we can approach God with what? Freedom and confidence. And then he says, oh yeah, let me get back to what I was praying for you. But you see the because? You see the because is kind of important. When we become sensible that when we understand it, when it gets in deep, we start to go, oh, mm, I need help. I'll receive help. And I've been called to something that's actually bigger than just getting through my day and killing people who mess with me. And seeing how much pleasure, security, and wealth I can gain for myself from being a law unto myself and defining myself from myself. I'm not meant to be a son of Lamech. I'm meant to be a son of Enosh or Enoch or Seth or whatever comes syllabically off your lips the best. But there's, there's not just the because there's the four, and that's what he gets to in verses 22. And I want to close kind of quickly here, so I want you to just look at two relationships in this passage that I think sometimes we overlook. And then I'm just going to read this passage. The first is, I want you to see the relationship between knowing and God's power. Now listen, Paul— had the equivalent of an earned PhD, 
okay? He was an academic guy. He knew multiple languages. He functioned in more than, in at least three continents. He was very cosmopolitan. He was very intelligent, okay? It says in Acts that he argued and proved the gospel when he interacted with people. So he's not anti-intellectual in the, even in the most minute possible sense, but he also recognizes that because we're sinful and because we're dull and because we say we want to come to God, but we also want to save things for ourselves, and because of that reality, because our emotions and our willfulness will make reason our horror, because of that, something more than knowledge has to happen for us to really see the glory. There might not be, need to be a lot of power for you to accept Jesus if, you're gener if you generally think you might go to hell if you don't accept him. But for you to actually see the manifold wisdom of God being displayed in all of creation through the glory of God's election and salvation and redemption and making us his workmanship and creating a church and pouring out its spirit and making us a people for all peoples and to make one people from all nations, all tongues for himself, to demonstrate his glory and wisdom to all intelligent beings in all of creation, that has to do something on a level of will and emotion as well as reason, and there has to be a fire there that burns with the heat of magnesium. And for that to happen, something of God's power has to be involved. And what Paul says is, that's what I'm praying for. That's what you need. You cannot come to this knowledge merely because of words or logic or historical argument or even mental ascension. Something really has to happen where everything inside you, all of your capacity to realize on every level, with every faculty, with all your senses, has to recognize the glory of Christ. And when that happens, you can do anything. And that takes something else. And the other thing I want you to see in this passage as we read it is I want you to see that most of what he refers to, and by most I mean literally everything, is inside of us. It has to do with our will, our character, our ability to conceive of something, our, our depth of knowledge. Everything that he refers to is what has to happen in us. There's nothing about what he hopes happens. There's not—do you notice? You read his whole book, he's in jail. Do you know what he never asks them to do? Pray for him to get out of jail. He never asks them to do that. You'd think if you're writing a letter— Right? You'd be like, hey, so I'm in jail. You guys should have a prayer meeting. Maybe you should even fast so that, like, I'll get let out of jail. He apparently doesn't—he doesn't care about that. Like, and it's not like Paul doesn't care. I mean, Roman prisons were pretty terrible, right? It's not, it's not like he's having a good time. But here's the thing. He's got his focus right, and he's got his priorities straight. And that, see, you see, it's not—I'm not saying that if you pray right, you won't ever pray for anything outside of you, and so you won't pray for people who have cancer, who have lost their job, or who are having a struggling relationship. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying your focus will be right. If something's going on at work, the first thing you pray for won't be like, I wish my boss would die, or I wish that employee would just quit. I wish he'd just quit. You'd be like, okay, you'd start with you. And you'd say, Lord, is there, am I creating this? Like that would occur to you. The, the problem you have, you're actually creating because there's something wrong. And that what has to happen is this pain is God's love towards you so that you'd be like, oh, and you change. And you realize you can't. 
And so you'd plead to God. You'd call on his name. You'd come to him with freedom and confidence and say, God, I need your help because he is available and wants to help in our time of need because he is displaying his own glory through us. He has an incentive, his own eternally chosen incentive for you to live gloriously because it is only through that that his own glory is revealed to all beings. And he wants you to see that. He wants you to have it. And so there is power needed for what has to happen in us, which only comes from him supernaturally and outside of our normal experience. And the main thing that he prays for is within us. And when he does that work within you, you will know what to pray for outside of you. So let's read the passage together and just look at those two things. And I hope that, I hope that when you have your small group discussion, you'll key in on this passage and those two things. Right? He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he's intentionally using a non-normal life. He's saying, there's something that you don't have out of God, the glorious riches that God possesses in his divinity. I'm praying that out of that, he would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established, he, now he's talking about character, right? That you'd be rooted and established. He's referring to the developmental character now that would exist if we dwell in Christ. That it would be, you'd be rooted and established in love that you may have the power together with all the saints to what? To grasp. See, that's a mental, cognitive, seeing and savoring of a reality. So he's saying, you need God to change your heart. You need God to form your character. You need God to fill your mind. You need the power of God inside of you, in every faculty, everywhere, all the time, to do a lot. How, so that you would be able to grasp what? How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So there's a point where knowing about Christ's love is something in addition to what we understand it cognitively. It fills us. The proper emotions that should rage and burn out of a knowledge of Christ's love actually rage and burn. The force that it puts behind the human will to act self-sacrificially and lovingly and to not put ourselves first and to stop being lambics and to be sons of Seth begins to happen because there's this firing of all the internal faculty cylinders because God's power is doing something inside of us. He says, now, he says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. And that is just a catch-all. That is everything that is in Christ, that you would be just spurting out your ears full of it. That is that life, that inner spring of water that Jesus spoke about, that fullness of the Holy Spirit, that complete transformation, however much any person can have, he says, I'm praying that you would have it. And then he's, after that, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask and imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. So in chapter 3 it said that all the angels and demons, every spiritual being was realizing the glory of God through the church. He also says, also, to him also be glory in the church throughout all generations so that all humanity would see the beauty and the glory of God if that were to happen. And that is why Paul prayed for us. That is why we pray for ourselves, and that is why we pray for each other, and that is why we pray for our neighbors. That is why we pray. It is because of the gospel, and it is for the gospel to make its way into us. So we would be very different than just people who've accepted Jesus and made religion part of our lives. We would be people entirely transformed in every way, on every level, in every faculty, on, in all modes of character to be made in the image of Christ, radiating through our God-given personalities as God's workmanship, living as sons of Seth who are willing to call on the name of God for the help that we require. So, before we talk about, over the next three weeks, the specifics of prayer, how do you pray in groups, how does prayer become part of the church, in what, in what way is worship part of prayer, how do we do it in small groups, all those things, we have to start with not what's easy for us. Look, you, you and I could get together, we could come up with a list of a hundred reasons why prayer is hard, not fifteen. But why it's hard isn't what's relevant, what's relevant is what's true. And if God is there, or I would argue, even if God might be there, then the question I think stands before you, will you call on his name? Will you do it? Will you pray? And if you're willing to try, let me just give you six, let's end with just, here's some practical things you could do, like right now. One is, you could call on God's name for the first time if you haven't. If you're not a Christian, you could say, God, I want to belong to you. I want to be yours. I want to be what you've said I'm meant to become. I, I believe in Jesus. I recognize my self-definition. My personal sinfulness is getting me nowhere that I deserve wrath, but that you give grace, and I want your grace and favor and mercy. Please give it to me. I'm calling on you. And the Bible says that when you do that, you are redeemed, saved, regenerated, and completely transformed. God will do a spiritual, supernatural work with you out of his power. If that hasn't happened, that has to happen first. Second is, we need to reverse what we normally do in prayer. And what we normally do in prayer is we have these expectations about how people should pray and super low expectations about what will happen when we pray. We need to reverse that. We need to have really low expectations about praying and much higher expectations about what God would do with prayer. Because what happens doesn't happen because of how you pray. What happens happens because God is generous and is invested in revealing his own glory through us. So pray idiotic one-sentence prayers that are actually sincere, that are the way you would talk to another person, though respectful, because that person is God. And then look to see what strange way God would do sort of what you were looking for, and basically not, but is totally better than what you asked for. Three, do the church stuff. We're going to have an emphasis on prayer. Participate. Come to the prayer meeting. Do the fast. Stuff like that. Pray. Four, get a mentor. If you've only seen dysfunction and ticks in Christian praying, go find somebody whose spirituality you respect and say, will you teach me how to pray? They'll say, yes, I'm so glad you asked. Not, you're a big dumb idiot. Right? 
Five, insist that your small group does prayer the way they have been instructed, which is to save a significant amount of time for it, 20 minutes at least, that they use the three rules about what prayer requests can be offered so that we're not praying about stuff way the heck out here, but the prayer request is in the room. You're asking questions like, what would Jesus' prayer request for me be? So that it focuses us and then cut off the prayer requests and actually pray. And if you're a small group leader, pray idiotically simple prayers. So that the most unschooled in prayer in your group will think, what an idiot, I can pray so much better than that. Instead of, I guess I shouldn't say anything because I won't sound that good. And last, just break out in prayer. Whenever anybody says anything that God could be praised for or that God could be appealed to on behalf of, just close your eyes and say, let's pray and start praying. And they might be there when you open your eyes back up. I mean, just everywhere, everywhere, I mean, I'm one of the people who aren't Christians, you have to say, can I, can I pray for you? Or would it be okay if I prayed for you? But like in church, like they've already sort of signed up for it. So if they come in and they're like, yeah, man, things are really tough. Don't be like, oh, oh, that must be bad. I bet your boss really is a jerk. And like, let's gossip together. Just be like, things are bad at work. Let's pray. Boom, pray. Right then, not long. They've got to go get their kids. Right? But just pray right there. Something's going wrong with you. Pray right there. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. You're about to uh, pray right then. (laughs) Right? You're starting to have an argument with your spouse. Stop. Pray right then. And pray a really self-humiliating prayer so that it's not an action of self-righteousness about the other person arguing with you. Stop me like, let's just stop right now. God, I'm getting angry. I know I'm beginning to infuriate my wife. I know you have made us one flesh. We are supposed to be on the same team here. Can you help us focus on our question and not on each other? And can you help us to have a, something, something good to happen here instead of something bad? And help me to be, help me to listen. Amen. Okay, what were you saying, sweetheart? What are you getting at? I want to, right? You stop, you pray. You stop, you pray. You just start praying. You just, let's just pray. Let's pray right now. Why don't you pray? Do you want to pray? I'll pray right now. Let's pray right now. Can we pray right now? I'm going to pray for you right now. Ready? God, I just— Just don't close your eyes if you're driving and they just told you something. (laughs) Then you just pray with your eyes open. You can pray with your eyes open. If you will just start breaking into prayer, really cool things will happen. Really cool. God does not need us to have an all-night prayer meeting for him to raise up his own name for his own glory. He just needs you to care enough to be like, I can't help you, but let's ask God to help you. Let's pray. Father, um, would you please help us to become, be able to grasp through your power the greatness of what you've done in Christ. How much you value us, yet how undeserving we are how generous you are in graciousness and mercy, how intricate is the beauty of your working plan, how dignified you have made us in creation and redemption and what you've made us for and what you're showing through us. God, we want, um, we want to be people who are in the line of, of Enosh. We want to be people who call on your name. We want to be people like Enoch who walk with you. And we, we don't want to be self-defined, self-made, and those who just will take and 
and be the kind of people that will, we will become. Help, Father, please help us because we are always in a time of need. So we come to you with confidence as we sing this song together and we, we pray that you would, as a church and as a people together, you would teach us to pray. And the reason we would pray would never be a mystery to us. To you be glory in the church in every generation, forever and ever. Amen.